This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Einstein and Gogo is presented by Squarespace, a scientific way to create a beautiful website with designer templates, an easy-to-use interface, and a free domain name. To start your free trial, go to squarespace.com. Use offer code RRR to save 10%. Squarespace. Triple R sponsors. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to give you some science now for the next hour. In the studio with me is Dr. Cromer. How are you, buddy? Uh, good morning, Dr. Shane. Good I, to see you. I managed to sneak in a bit of a run before I came here. That's why I've only been here about two minutes. <laughs> You're always running around. You must have read one of those articles about movement and staying young or something. Like that. I don't know. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning. I must say, it is lovely weather for a run out there. We had our Christmas in July celebration last night, and it was, wasn't very Christmassy because it was just like sunny and blue skies. I was, wanted it to be wintry and cold. You, you put all these pictures on Facebook up of um, trifle. Where is it? <laughs> I ate it, <laughs> and it was it was happiness. It was pure to, happiness in a bowl. Say, my trifle. You know, you use canned peaches. I'm a banana kind of fan in the trifle. I don't know canned mm. peaches really. It's winter preserved fruit. Alcohol, yeah. Alcohol in a trifle. Boozy yeah. trifle. Mm. Yeah. Cherry, I, cherry or brandy though. It's, I actually mm. noticed when you had all the ingredients laid out, you know, IKEA style on the on the table. Um, Pinch. Uh, uh, you know, it's, I was it's, looking for the booze, like a big <laughs> bottle of bourbon or something. I thought I was oh. keeping it family friendly. Yeah, fair enough. Use responsibly, kids. people. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning. How are you? You don't sound hungover at all. No, not today. <laughs> <laughs> should should I? What's going on? You there was a party last night that I didn't know about or I love that. That, that. that kind of potentially insulted everyone. You. <laughs> <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Uh, there we go. We're going to get into some science. We have some great guests today, though, folks. We're going to be talking to Alyssa Barry from Wehi and Nadia Bellaflore from um, the Hudson Research Institute about some things a little bit later. But we're going to start off with some news Dr. Kramer, what do you got first? Well, first of all, I'd like to... Um, when I was out in the creek this morning, I saw a swan polar bin. It's great to get out there and see nature in suburban areas. And what a bit of nature under threat at the moment is a beautiful lemon-scented gum tree at the bottom of, uh, the bottom of Mount Alexander Road, at the end of Flemington. Mm -hmm. There's some dedicated people trying to protect that at the moment. Yeah. Forget, to, forgetting, of course, the other four or five that have already cut down. Yes, but if yeah. they could save this one, if you are interested, go to Guardians of Flemington Road Gum on Facebook. Mm. Oh, I so, love that tree. It's a beautiful tree. They, the lemon scented gums, if you don't know which ones they are, they're the ones that look like human skin, the trees. Mm, beautiful, smooth. Yeah. Hey, and, and a question, actually, maybe some of our listeners can answer this via our Twitter feed, but um, it looks as though some parts of it at the top have already been cut. Yes, they came in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, now they've got a 24 hour vigil on it. Oh, that's sad. It's one yeah. metre wide. They could have a one metre island in the middle of the road. It's I, done out. It's done in other countries. I go along that right lane every single day on my way to work, and I will happily take a short detour if it means the tree gets kept. But, um, yeah. you know, listen in, Vic <laughs> Rhodes. We're talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> and nature, anyway, uh, there's yeah. an article came out two weeks ago that I won't talk about that, that talked about in some ways that plants are sentient. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll come back to that later, <laughs> later date. Um, so I, I was drawn by a, by, by a headline, freaky new evidence suggests your immune system could be controlling your behaviour. Mm. This came from a, a group, I think we've covered this before last year, that found a way through from the blood to the brain. There is no barrier anymore. There is actually yep. three or four at least ways that the brain and the blood can directly talk to each other. Um, and there is a blurring of physical versus um, psychological diseases. Um, and it's known, it was already known that the immune system 
messing up the immune system uh, could help uh, to can, could help our normal behaviour, but can also contribute, and that's a small contribution to diseases such as autism, um, schizophrenia, etc. So, and it's not proven beyond doubt. So, the immune system important for all chronic diseases. So, what this same group did is they thought, well, let's actually try and see what happens when you knock one immune system gene out. So they knocked out a gene, they, they took out a gene uh, in four different species of animals, so not just working with a mouse model, uh, I think rats and a couple of other uh, animals. Um, and they took this one gene, and what happens is that the animals became less social. Mm. And then they put the gene back and they, into the same animals, um, using the technology that we talked, spoke about before, and those individuals became social again. Now, this is interesting, all those lines of mice became social again. Um, the interesting thing about that article, it said, well, have we evolved, did our immune systems and our behaviour evolve together? As we grew larger and larger groups and tribes, did, uh, because we'd be coming to contact with more people, therefore to catch more, did our immune systems develop to cope mm. more? So did social behaviour co-evolve with, with adaptive immune function, which is basically saying what we encounter after birth, it, it programmes our immune system. So it's an oh, can it interesting speak, idea. Well, can it speak more broadly about how genes have, are multifunctional? Like, yes. like you're saying it's a gene of the immune system, but we know there are many genes that have influence in many different pathways. Yeah. So is it the immune system or is it a gene that just has functions in different systems? Yeah. And that's, mm. very, that's very important because there are immune cells in the brain, the microglial cells in the brain, and many conditions uh, such as autism and schizophrenia do do have these immune aspects. And, and and Dr. Crystal's right. There's quite often we think of a gene as working in the brain or working mm. in the immune system, but in reality they work all over the place if we just look hard enough. Mm. Yep, interesting and complex stuff. It's one of those areas where I think the next ten years is going to really open up a lot of good mm. good areas of science. Dr. Crystal, this week I was fascinated by a story about graphene. Now graphene is that um, substance which was uh, uh, awarded a Nobel Prize in 2010, or the, the people who um, work on graphene, because it's a it's a single atom thick layer of carbon mm. that is stronger than steel and as hard as diamond and we're still learning more about how it functions because at this scale, you know, at this kind of nanotechnology scale at a single atomic level, it has some very fascinating properties. And this week um, there was a paper published in the journal Nature uh, by some scientists from Trinity College in Dublin um, <laughs> where, where they describe it as an entirely surprising discovery, which is why I like this story. Um, they They're all jumping up and down. Well, no, it was, it was really serendipitous. It was something that, you know, a graduate student kind of discovered by accident. These are my favourite um, science yep, stories. Because they did something wrong. Well, <laughs> well, they, they, they were looking at how this, they, this tough material can be induced to tear itself to ribbons. Okay. Uh, so basically, there was this grad student whose job it was to punch holes into graphene with a diamond tip because diamond's the hardest thing to, to puncture graphene and then kind of rock it backwards and forwards because they were testing the um, anti-friction properties of graphene. And, you know, it's the kind of thing you might give a student to do, like, well, you know, what are the anti-friction <laughs> properties? What do you do if you if you kind of, like, rub it backwards and forwards and punch holes in it? And um, <laughs> If you want them to leave. And when this student punched holes in the sheet... 
it saw that, you know, in some occasions that the graphene sheet would actually tear itself up and kind of peel itself back over in these mm. ribbons of, of various size. And, you know, like all good students, they probably will thought, oh, no, do I tell my supervisor or not? And so, you know, I went to the supervisor <laughs> and said, um, this thing keeps happening. I'm not quite sure what it is. And it's like, right, at that point, we knew it was something interesting and new. And so they're actually kind of looking at... Um, how, how it kind of spontaneously curls up and folds back in itself because that's actually, from a molecular point of view, a very desirable energetic state. Um, but it's really hard to do because you actually have to rip up and tear and break those carbon bonds in that flat sheet. And that actually takes quite a lot of energy to, to rip and destroy those 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 um, that, those that bonds at an, at an atomic level. And so... Um, and so that, that energy requirement is kind of a barrier to this movement, but they found that it's the oscillation of the diamond tip when they, they put it into the sheet that helps overcome that energy barrier that allows the sheet to peel itself back um, and kind of fold up in on itself. And you know, I think, well, what does that mean? And it's like, well, actually, if you could think about ways to control that, like at different temperatures or different oscillation rates, you know, the ways that you can get and control the ways these ribbons of graphene can form and stack, you could actually use that in electric circuitry. Because one of the unusual profit properties about graphene mm. is that it's a really fantastic high uh, electrical um, conduct conductivity. So it's a really good conductor of electricity. So you could now imagine... If you can control the size and shape and formation of these graphene ribbons um, into this kind of like ribbon network, you could see how they might form electrodes, transistors, capacitors, mm. and sort of like a nano circuitry of future devices using this highly strong and highly conductive material. Mm. All on a very small scale. On a very small mm. scale, which, you know, when you talk about miniaturisation of devices and the movement to, you know, devices mm. that need less energy on a smaller scale, you know, how is it we're going to get the circuitry of the future? Maybe graphene mm. has a role. Anyway, but I also thought it was a fantastic shout out to basic discovery yeah and how still learning things unintended discovery. through observation i love that phrase totally surprising discovery an entirely surprising discovery as opposed to a unsurprising totally <laughs> expected discovery cool. well it's something you set you set out they didn't set out to to discover yeah, to a new that. way yeah. of of assembling graphene ribbons yeah. they just that's they, where they, they were just trying to hide this poor graduate student with something boring <laughs> keep it, keep anti-friction properties yeah. off you go go and do okay. that yeah we'll work something out for you real next week yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ailey, what do you got for us? I was channeling my eight-year-old self this week. It was so exciting. <laughs> no, seriously. Just so this week? Just this, yeah. Well, most <laughs> of the time, usually. But, um, look, dinosaurs. It's all about dinosaurs for me this week and uh, mm. how they died. So... You know what's the traditional kind of hypothesis about that? Yeah. How the dinosaurs Big got rock. meteorite, Bang. exactly. Hit the earth, Bang. Dead. exactly. Tsunami. Exactly. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Ash I'll cloud. Fly, you know, ash, ash cloud. cloud. Exactly. And so that's kind of the the traditional accepted hypothesis of how the dinosaurs carked it, basically. Um, and you know, that's still the leading hypothesis. But there was some really interesting work out of uh, Tohoku University in Japan this week, uh, published in a journal called Scientific Reports, that basically talked about the fact that it's actually not so simple as big media goes smash and sulfuric. Um, sulfuric aerosols go into the stratosphere and everyone gets really cold and shivers to mm. death. Not that simple. So that was kind of the leading hypothesis. And, you know, with, with that, that cooling and, and drying, photosynthesis is shut down, all the land-based plants, you know, they die, all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't explain why the crocodilian dinosaurs survived... Ah. 
and the rest didn't. Huh. Right? Are they so, hiding well, underwater or something? Well, yeah, of course. And, and, and still got to eat. They, they still got to eat, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so they would eat the detritus and stuff that was they in the They'd eat the dead dinosaurs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for a million years. <laughs> well, it also didn't explain, because when we think about things like volcanic eruptions, for mm. example, and the sulphur that goes into the stratosphere with that, yeah, it cools the globe, but only on the order of kind of a year or two. Right, yeah. You don't get that sustained uh, okay. cooling. Yeah. And so the question is, well, what could have caused that sustained cooling? So this mm. group from the Japanese University basically looked um, in rocks that were about 66 million years old in, in Haiti and somewhere else in the Caribbean. Nice place to do field work. But anyway, they um, looked at these rocks and instead of finding um, this kind of sulphur uh, or sort of sulfuric aerosol stuff in there, what they found were these, um, hang on, I've got to get this right, polyaromatic hydrocarbons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah those That's a good word. <laughs> and those but are the ones that we consider nasty pollutants nowadays. Yeah, well, I think yeah. they are, but basically what they are is, is hydrocarbons that have been combusted but haven't been completely ah, combusted. combusted. So there's evidence of combustion there. And so what they think happened was that when this meteor crashed into, into the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico... It's it's very oil-rich area. And so they actually think it set off a whole bunch of oil fires, wow. big oil fires, <laughs> and oil fires last for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And so what was happening was all this smoke and this soot was being ejected constantly into the atmosphere and up into the, the stratosphere, the, the, the higher layer where it sits for a very long time. And so this caused... Um, more cooling for a more prolonged period of time. And they also did some modelling with, with climate models and atmospheric models to see what would happen uh, as this, this stuff swished around in the atmosphere. And what they found was that the impact on the climate was actually a lot greater at middle and higher latitudes, so further away from the equator mm -hmm. towards the poles, than it was at the equator itself. So at the equator itself, yeah, it got cooler and it got drier, but not as much as everywhere else. And so basically those uh, dinosaurs that were at the equator, the crocodilian dinosaurs, mm. for survived. example, su were more likely mm. to survive. And so that, that kind of fits with that hypothesis. And it's only one piece of evidence, but it's, it's another interesting, interesting. Yeah. interesting piece of the puzzle. Look at that affected the, the mammals as well in some way. I know they're warm-blooded, yeah. but maybe... Yeah, well, they were talking about other forms of reptiles as well and, and mm. how they, you know... Mm, interesting. Survive. But anyway. Now, very quickly, uh, another dwarf planet has been added to the list. I'm not <laughs> sure if you guys saw this during the week. Uh, it's, well, it's been designated uh, 2015 RR245. Only one R missing there. And it's out there in the Kuiper Belt, or Kuiper if you come from the western suburbs like me. Um, and basically... Um, it's about 9.6 billion kilometres from the sun. So for those of you with your measuring sticks out, that's about 64 times the distance from the Earth to the sun. So it's a fair way out. And it's in the region beyond Neptune where Pluto and all the other um, Kuiper Belt objects exist. No one really knows how big it is yet. And it's interesting, they, they put an estimate on it of about 700 kilometres wide, which is not insignificant. How does that compare to Pluto? Well, Pluto's, I think, bigger than that, yeah. but a, a better comparison is to the moon, so that's about one-fifth of the diameter of the moon. So it's, yeah, it's a pretty, oh. potentially pretty big. Well, big, big-ish, oh, okay. but... Um, yeah, you can land something on there. Um, but the interesting thing is you don't know how big it is, and I'll tell you why. This is the th thing I find fascinating, is if you look at an object far away with a telescope, um, you determine its size. If you don't know it's all orbital mechanics and so forth, so you can't work out how much mass it's got. You determine its size, so its physical size, not its weight or its mass, mass, not weight, by its brightness. 
And if you think, okay, this is exactly the same sort of material as the moon and it has a certain brightness, you can say, well, then it's a certain size because you're just comparing those two. But if we don't know what it's made of, it could be really shiny, in which case it's really bright and mm. it appears really big, or it could be really dull, in which case it's not so bright and we think, oh, it's actually really small. So if you don't know what it's actually made of, you can't really work out how big it is. And that's why many of these objects are only given estimates of their actual size. So, you know, we can make approximations, but... Beyond that, it's pretty tricky. So they think it's several hundred kilometres. Can they kind of work out a range, though? Yeah, well, what they can do is they can say, well, all the other objects in this area are made up of this material. And so from that, they can kind of take a guess. But even if you think about, you know, in, say, between the Sun and Jupiter, and you look at all the planets in our area, well, there's Earth and there's there's Venus and there's Mars, and you look at the different brightnesses and different compositions of those planets, they're highly varied. So it's likely out in the Kuiper Belt, things will be a lot more consistent, you know, icy, rocky crap. So, but they don't really know. But anyway, it's yet another one of these objects that they've found. So there's a lot of material out there um, that in the past we just didn't know about. So it's mm. pretty cool. And some of these objects, are, you know, they're big. I mean, we're not talking little rocks. You know, 700 kilometres wide, if that's the actual size, is is a big whopper. So that's something you can see from here, which is not with your naked eye. And there's no possibility of water as there are on some moons? <clears throat> well, a lot of these objects do have um, a lot of ice, um, mm. but, you know... I guess what kind of ice. Yeah, exactly. Could be <laughs> methane. You're listening to 3RRR, the show's Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us is Dr. Alyssa Barry. She's from the Rolter and Eliza Hall Institute, better known as WeHi. Alyssa, welcome to the studio. Good morning. It's great to have you in here. Um, we've had many guests over the years talk about particular types of malaria, but we haven't talked about the type you're here to discuss, which is, I understand, um, P. vivax. Now, give yes. us, just give us a bit of a, a part of the history here of the various malaria um, types, because w this is one that hasn't been studied as extensively. Yes, that's true. Um, so <clears throat> Plasmodium falciparum is the the uh, malaria parasite that's been most studied mm -hmm. uh, b because it causes most of the disease and deaths due to malaria. Uh, Plasmodium vivax in the past has been relatively ignored and it's only recently been recognised that it, it causes significant disease and death in, in human populations and particularly in our region, in the Asia-Pacific re okay. region. Yeah. And and why is that? I mean, why did we not have this knowledge? It seems as though malaria is so prevalent in, in our, you know, just north of Australia, the northern parts of Australia and yes. beyond. Um, it, it seems to me as though we would have worked this out in the past. Is, I, why, why is that? I think unclear? the focus was just on Plasmodium falciparum because the, it does cause more severe malaria and a lot more severe malaria. So okay. whereas Plasmodium vivax was always believed to have caused uh, mostly uh, a, a fever and an and illness, and, and it's really only re recently been recognised mm. that it that it causes severe disease. Mm. Um, now, now, you've just had a couple of papers in Nature Genetics, which is a yes. very prestigious journal, because you've looked at the the actual sort of full genome of this particular malaria parasite. Yes. I, I mean, what does that entail? How do you go about? determine you know every now and then we we hear someone's done the genome of a worm or something people yeah. get excited <laughs> I, you know jeff gets excited crystal gets excited crystal's going to cough at the back of the studio <laughs> she's so mm -hmm. excited um but but how do you what does that mean you know what what is involved in doing that and what does it give us okay so it's it starts out with collection of a blood sample mm -hmm. um and for malaria genome sequencing at the moment uh we need 
high density infections so people that are quite sick with malaria coming into the clinic and um, we start with about at least one to five mils of blood and then the blood needs to be filtered to remove human white blood cells mm -hmm. which contain a lot of human DNA because if we sequence the, the DNA from the blood sample with the human DNA in there we'd basically get hardly any parasite DNA oh, right, because right. it represents less than 0.1% of okay. the total sample. So we, we do that, we enrich for the parasite DNA and then um, the sequencing is done in a, in a sequencing centre at um, the Sanger Institute in the mm -hmm. UK. Yep. Um, this is one of the institutes that was involved in the human genome sequencing project mm -hmm. and also the original um, Plasmodium falciparum genome sequencing right. project. Um, so so yeah, it's a lot of work. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then it requires a lot of analysis. So bioinformaticians, um, several bioinformaticians working on the data. And in this case, um, there were two separate studies of around 200 genomes. Right. Um, now, now, when you, you get all this data, I mean, how does that help you? I mean, when we, we were chatting just before um, we went to air and, and we were talking, you know, I have this interest in evolution and how things evolve. I mean, what do you learn and, and how do you learn about the evolution of this particular parasite from, from this genomic data? Okay, so we can learn a, an incredible amount of detail about evolution um, in the past and 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 more recently mm -hmm. so by looking at the mutations the d differences between uh, the malaria parasite genomes we can see specific patterns or signatures of, of past events okay so uh, we look at the relatedness of parasite populations from different geographic areas to see how they're connected to each other uh, and so and this tells you this essentially tells you when they were last alike or yes. when, so, so when the they branched common, off, yeah, 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 the, yeah the, related. The most recent common ancestor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and how far back can you track that? I mean, what does this mean for this particular malaria infection? I mean, did it did it stem locally, or is it related to the other main one that we see in north northern hemisphere? So it it uh, what the data shows is that it it uh, emerged potentially from Africa and and then spread around the world with human populations and it uh, migrated with humans out of Africa down into the South Pacific and through, through mm. Asia and down into the South Pacific. Uh, later on um, uh, there was uh, Plasmodium vivax in the Mediterranean okay. uh, in Europe. So and it went back? Uh, yeah, so it came out of Africa and went into Europe as well. And that population since become extinct because of right. the last eradication program in the 50s and 60s successfully eliminated malaria from Europe. And so there's, there's evidence of that, uh, that diversity of, of that European parasite population in South America. Mm. So the hypothesis is based on the data that uh, the the malaria parasite went to South America, Latin America via the the Spanish um, trade. And uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah, the, mm. the Spanish uh, um, movement into mm. that area, but also through later in the last five hundred years through the uh, through the uh, transatlantic slave trade from West Africa mm, right. as well. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, you partially answered this question, Elisa, but to what extent has it been a cat and mouse fight between humans and, and plasmodium? Yeah, um, well, it, actually, the human population has evolved in, in response to the malaria parasites as well. And in the South Pacific, Papua New Guinea in particular, we see a lot of different human genetic polymorphisms that have arisen as a result of pressure from malaria infection. Um, I mean, most people would be familiar with sickle cell anemia, mm. which is present in Africa, beta thalassemia through the Mediterranean and in the South, uh, in Asia Pacific and, and the Southwest Pacific, uh, alpha thalassemia and, and an infection, a, a genetic mutation known as South, Southeast Asian ovalocytosis, which provides protection against the particular mm. parasite. So these, these are rare blood disorders that essentially prevent the parasite from taking... Well, they're not taking, rare. They're not, oh, they're not rare, rare there, yeah. yeah. yeah well, yeah. located in, in part yeah. of the world, though, yeah. 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 It's fascinating. Crystal? Uh, you mentioned that um, Plasmodium vivax is a is a very significant health problem in our region. Mm. So I guess when you talk about taking samples of blood, you're not talking about of taking them from people here in Melbourne. No. And um, <laughs> and, and and when you are uh, and doing that work in those kind of countries in our in our neighbourhood, um, why is it important to to do genetics in populations in terms of from from a health perspective? Okay. So in uh, yeah, we take samples from malaria endemic areas. So Papua New Guinea. Um, Thailand, Southeast, other Southeast Asian countries where m malaria is prevalent. It's important from a health perspective to understand the genetic diversity of the malaria parasite because this is what we're trying to um, attempt to control. And so by understanding the diversity, we can design better vaccines, we can understand how the parasite has become resistant to current anti-malarial drugs um, and, and so that we can monitor uh, resistance to, to drugs. Because we're in a phase now where we're talking about the elimination and eradication of malaria globally. I mean, in my, I'm, I hope we see it in my lifetime. Have we started to see that happen in our region? Yeah, absolutely. So through funding from the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, the the prevalence of, of disease and death due to malaria in Papua New Guinea, for example, has decreased by more than 75% in the last few years. So PNG's uh, uh, control program has really only intensified in the last, well, since about 2006. Uh, and we, we've seen decreases in prevalence of infection in the community from 50% down to below 10%. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and when, when you look at the genetic data that you're getting, and there is this issue around um, the, the, the particular um, biological response to our attempts to eradicate this, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, are we going to win, or do you think from the genetic um, data you have that, that the particular species will be able to adapt in time before, as Dr. Crystal says, we eradicate it. Okay. I mean, can, can you see that? Can you see the speed of the two things happening and, and say, yeah. actually, you know, we're going to win or we're not? Yeah. Well, you can you, you can <coughs> see that we're winning at the moment. Mm, okay. Um, so the the main the mainstay of control at the moment is insecticide treated bed nets, right. long lasting insecticide treated bed nets. So uh, the malaria parasite 
can't really adapt to that. Yeah. The mosquitoes <laughs> can, so they yep. stop biting indoors and instead bite outdoors. Right. So that's happening in, in malaria endemic countries where the mosquitoes change their behaviour. But uh, the malaria parasite itself, um, we can see evolution to uh, drugs that are being mm. used to treat the malaria parasite. And so this uh, provides the initiative for for drug policies to mm. change, but we need more drugs. That's really important. Is there a reservoir for malaria? I mean, when we hear about a lot of these diseases like Ebola, there's a lot of talk about what the reservoir is for these. So even mm. if you eradicate it from all the people across the planet, six months later it'll come back. I mean, what's the deal with malaria? Has it got the same capacity? Um, yeah, so in Africa, uh, a human malaria parasite or, uh, parasites that are like the human malaria parasites infect the the um, non-human primate mm. primates, so um, gorillas and and chimpanzees, um, and but in uh, in our region in the in the Asia Pacific, that's not the case. Mm. Um, if you were to eliminate human malaria from from that reservoir, it it won't come back. That's but, good news. Yeah, Plasmodium vivax is is a particularly interesting case because the parasite can stay dormant in the liver for months and right. years at a time. So if you only use drugs that treat the blood stage, yep. it will come back. Yeah. So we need more drugs to treat the, the liver stage parasites. Yeah. Important stuff. Well, Alyssa, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us and keep up that good work. It's, it's not the sort of stuff we normally hear about in terms of malaria research and I love the link with evolution and, and especially even you know things like the Spanish um, movements across the world and mm. so forth. So um, yeah, thanks for chatting to us and good luck. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alyssa Barry is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Three, triple, You are listening to Triple R. We have another guest in the studio. Nadia Bellafiore is from the Hudson Research Institute. Nadia, welcome to the Triple R Studios. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you work in an area that we don't talk about every day on the uh, show, but we probably should, and that's menstruation. And you've been pretty excited of late because uh, you found a new mouse that does this. Now, I have to say, I didn't know that mice didn't do this normally. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the reaction I get. That's my first reaction we get when we've actually come forward and said this news is that um, mice typically don't menstruate. In fact, menstruation is extraordinarily rare um, outside of women, even though 50% of our the human race will undergo a period at some point in their mm. life. Outside of women, we're limited to higher order primates like okay. baboons and macaques. Yep. Um, four species of bat and a little creature called the elephant shrew. So as you can imagine, there are all sorts of you know, ethical, cost-effective, logistic concerns in how we actually research menstruation. But typically, mice do not menstruate. So to find this was mm. uh, extraordinarily surprising. So a question for you. I mean, given, given mammals and so forth, you know, they're all similar in many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, why don't more, uh, you know, mammals actually menstruate. I mean, I, I always thought this was part of the reproductive system mm. in, in mammals, but it doesn't happen. How do, how do they compensate for that? Yes, yeah, so that's a brilliant question, and that's sort of one of those evolutionary questions is like, why does anything evolve the way it does? But um, I think the thing to consider with menstruation is that it hasn't actually evolved as a beneficial trait itself, so it's actually a consequence of another mechanism across our reproductive cycle in preparation for implantation and pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So the mammals which menstruate, we have an extraordinarily aggressive means of trophoblast invasion. And 
This is really the, harsh. The what the? the sorry, the trophoblast <laughs> invasion. So when the embryo is actually burrowing into the mother's uterus, yeah. it's much more aggressive than any other species. And this okay. is because we actually have um, really mature offspring. So you'll notice when your baby's born, they kind of look like mini adults. And, yeah. and you see this... Um, they come, other they're coming out species. with iPads these days. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they're just so mature and their brain's developed yeah. and all those yeah. organs are developed. And that has a lot to do with how much investment we put into our offspring with our placentation and the placenta and delivering those nutrients. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen a newborn baby mouse, what you'll see yeah. is they look like almost embryos. They're pink and they're mm. squishy and they're not well developed at all. Um, and that's to do with the fact that they don't have the same sort of placentation as we do. So the way in which we've sort of evolved to combat that, we have to protect the mother because obviously she wants to put her investments into her offspring. Uh, but if it if they burrow too deeply into her, they're going to cause damage, she's going to hemorrhage, all sorts of things can go wrong. And we do see that clinically sometimes, which is, mm. which is awful, and that's the consequence. So what happens is that we've sort of evolved this mechanism that we protect the mother a little bit and we have this reaction called a decidual reaction. And all that basically means is that the cells in our uterus undergo a change in preparation for um, pregnancy. And essentially this protects the mother, but what happens is that once those cells have changed and we don't get pregnant, we can't actually flip them back. Right. So that we actually shed these cells and as a consequence, all the blood vessels around these cells uh, are lost as well and that's the bleeding that you see. So mm. Now, with this uh, particular mice, which I understand has got the amazing name of the spiny mice, mm-hmm. okay. um, <laughs> very creative. I mean, how did you find this mice? Did you just go around grabbing mice, turning them upside down and going, nah, <laughs> nah. No, not you. Nah. No, not oh, hang on. <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you find a mouse? Yeah. I mean, because there's a temporal problem here too. You've got to grab them at the right time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so... I was unfortunate enough to work at Hudson Institute where we have the only research colony of spiny mice in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay. And they have been utilised for decades as models of insulin resistance and diabetes uh, and also for their regenerative capacity for their skin. They can regrow their mm-hmm. skin and hair follicles, so that's studied in the US. Uh, but See, no I, one's, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty extraordinary. They're the only mammal to do that, so they're these amazing little species. Uh, mm. But no one's actually really looked at their reproduction, so... Okay. Basically, what we use them for in our lab at Hudson is to look at birth asphyxia models of perinatal injury. But we didn't really know what was going on, you know, with mum's sort of cycle. We thought we need to make sure that these animals are breeding the way they're supposed to be. So that was essentially the focus of my PhD. And doing a routine pregnancy and health checks, I came across a cage of virgin females and I saw these little specklings of blood on the bottom Mm. of the cage. And obviously our first instinct, because in mice it's very common that they have a dominant sort of mouse. Exactly. So they sort of, you know, bite each other's tails a little bit, nothing harmful. So it's not uncommon we see blood at the bottom of the cage. But it looked different and you know we we looked at all the females and like mm, no one's fighting so where's this blood coming from and we got more and more instances of that happening and one day I was I picked up a female and I saw that she had blood coming out of the vaginal canal and after initial shock and making sure that she was perfectly healthy and happy and she was great she was a little bit temperamental which is a bit funny for me but um she was she was other than that she was extraordinarily healthy so we had to open our mind to the possibility that hang on maybe she's on her period and we had a bit of a laugh because that's preposterous but 
it wasn't. It, it mm. turned out we got our data and we got a lot of evidence to support that they it's were amazing. actually menstruating. Yeah. Now, uh, Jeff, just uh, you're not allowed. To, you and I do not laugh at any of these jokes. <laughs> okay, we'll get hit. Um, now, in terms of, I mean, first of all, um, sorry to all those people in the past who've seen these little bits of blood on the cages and yeah. didn't work it out. Suck it, folks. Nadia <laughs> found it. Uh, well done. But what does this mean in terms of? Uh, I don't know how to really say this. It's not a condition we're treating, but the symptoms mm. associated with menstruation can be quite extraordinary. Absolutely. And when it goes wrong, as you said, it can cause quite severe yeah. illness. So what what does having this mouse mean for that? Well, essentially, the reaction is, you know, no one's ever died from having a period, which I completely understand, but it is a quality of life sort of thing. And there, the conditions associated with menstrual problems such as endometriosis, adenomyosis, uh, and then clinical pregnancy conditions as well, where we don't have that mm. proper preparation for pregnancy, lead to really high-risk diseases such as preeclampsia, where yep. you do actually have a high sort of fetal maternal morbidity and mortality. Mm. So having this mouse, uh, our first step is to see if they actually exhibit any of these sort of conditions. And if they do, we would have a much more easily accessible model in which to study these we don't have to wait for those women to suffer and to come forward and go through the clinical trials we don't have mm. to try and induce it in monkeys we sort of hopefully have a model which will establish that mm. and is this a model where we can do genetics as well are you able to do genetic um, and uh, work in the the spiny mouse we haven't as yet and that's basically because Almost nobody uses the spiny mouse. You have the only colony in the Southern in Hemisphere. Some, exactly. <laughs> um, so in terms of validating our protocols and doing basic routine scientific work, it's very difficult because every antibody needs to be tested. Uh, we don't know how the tissues are going to react when we do PCR primers. We have to design from scratch. So it's a, at, up until now, it's been a very slow process. So we haven't genetically manipulated any yet, but potentially... We could. I guess what it does give you is a whole new field of white space to explore. Absolutely. Mm. There's no shortage of work for us. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, what sort of response are you getting to this? Because it is one of those topics that, you know, in many cases, people won't won't want to discuss it. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's ridiculous, frankly. It it, is. Are are you getting a good response? I mean, this, I mean, it only, what, affects 51% of the population. So, I mean, you know, if you're going to put money into research, you know. It's it's interesting that we don't talk about it and that there are women who are suffering in silence because Mm. we've become so complacent that you're just on your period, deal with it. There's pretty much nothing we can do for you, Um, which is crazy because endometriosis affects 10% of the population and you work out how many women are reproductively active at the time and that works out to be over 100 million women who are affected by these sorts of diseases and it's it's baffling that we don't try to do more about it and we don't talk about our periods because it's sort of that... You know, we there's nothing we can do. Yeah, look, we have done a bit on this on the show over the years, and in fact, there's a there's a group in in Melbourne that uh, provides um, period packs for uh, homeless people, which mm-hmm. is fabulous. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name. I'm sure someone will tweet it in, but that that's that's something that's available. And we talked about that once before. Nadia, thanks so much for coming in. I really hope that this um, this you know, does, as Dr. Crystal said, open up a whole new space of research because it's something that is, is a major concern mm, that causes absolutely. major illness and, and you've finally found, you know, the, the elusive mouse model that you can now use to, to look at some of these things in, in, in more detail without doing the experiment on higher primates, which I, I have to say um, funny about um, all, all animal mm. use, but if we can do it in mice, I'm a little easier on that than mm. I am in some of the higher primates. So, so well done on the discovery and, um, and keep talking about it because it's something that the more we talk about, the more I love to talk about periods. 
it's a snow. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> we can tell. We can tell. Uh, Nadia Bellafiore is from the Hudson Research Institute and working on periods, menstruating rodent species, and there's only one of them, and we've got it. Dr. Crystal, over to you. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Now, um, I had a, a fundamental question that I wanted to talk about today, which is can you change your genes? Um, because I was I almost spat out my coffee last weekend when I was in a cafe reading a paper about um, the lifestyle guru Deepak Chopra's new book oh, yeah. called Super Genes, you know, how lifestyle shifts can help you reboot your health at a genetic level. And you kind of think, hmm. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> if he said epigenetic, it would have been fine. But he does talk about <laughs> epigenetics, and that's the point, is that he does kind of talk about, and, and everything in the book's like, you know, you know, think about, you know, decrease your stress, increase your exercise, eat well. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how that influences your genes. Mm. And you think, yeah, it can change which genes go on and off, but actually changing your genes at a fundamental level yep. is something we're really only starting to understand. So I kind of wanted to address that question. Can you change your genes? And I guess the answer in a hard sense is no because your dna is inherited right <laughs> you know it's the core code is fixed you know you get half your genes from the egg and half the genes from the sperm you know that comes together in every cell of your body it's the same dna mm. but it is how you use it that matters so it's not what you've got it's how you use it how you turn it on and off and how is it that you know your kidney cell has the same dna as your skin cell but they function in different ways you know and so i guess that's kind of talks to the fact that you know we're talking about DNA and genes. Genes are like those functional bits of DNA that do things. So, you know, we sequenced the, hum the human genome over 15 years ago and worked out that there was 300 billion base pairs of these guanines, cytosines, thiamines and adenines, the Gs, the As, the Ts and the Cs, all the codes just for like, like, simple, like little units of letters. Um, but actually how many genes there are, how many functional bits that are encode something is, is a whole nother question. It turns out that humans in that, you know, three trillion, you know, base pairs of DNA probably have something around 20 to 23,000 genes, which is more than a chicken and less than a grape, to kind of put that in perspective. Less than, <laughs> less a, than grape. a grape. Grapes have about 30,000 coding genes. Wow. Which just goes to say... That's it's, why they make wine. Yeah. <laughs> it goes to say it's not how many genes you have that's important, it's how you use yeah. them that's important. Take that, grapes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I actually asked a really... Grapes are arguably the dumbest thing on the earth. Is that true? Because they don't use virtually any of their genes. Well, 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 they've got a lot sorry, of... Well, they managed from. to enlist those humans to cultivate them <laughs> yeah, and to well, care maybe, for them. exactly. Maybe they're the smart ones. But what I wanted to know is, well, how do we... How many do we know of these genes, what they do? And I thought it was a really simple right. question. And when yeah. I, the more I tried to look up, well, if we know we've got about 20,000 odd genes... How many do we use? How many, how many do we know what they do? Hmm. Like and I and I couldn't find the answer very easily, so I asked Twitter, and it turns out that <laughs> that's a good source. It, it is actually because yeah. um, the director of the European Bioinformatics Institute tweeted me back oh, cool. from the other <laughs> side of the world and said, actually, well, a third we probably know at least one function for the gene. A third we've got some hints of what it does, and a third we're probably still clueless. And of the twenty thousand, do we definitely use all of them? Well, or, or are there some that just don't do anything? Well, that's what we, we, well, these are the ones where we think encode for a protein, right. but we don't actually know if they make the protein. So it could be They could just be sitting there like a recipe book un, unused. unused. Yeah. Yeah. So only a third of them we actually know what they... We've got a clue as well. We, you know, mm. We've got an idea of what one of mm. their functions might be. So there's probably some that did stuff in the past, but maybe stopped doing it for whatever yeah, reason. And, yeah, and so it's kind of like if you want to change your genes, I think actually like 
we don't actually know what two-thirds of them do. So yeah, be you careful. Know, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but really, last year, 2015, was really the year of human gene editing where this new technology, the CRISPR-Cas9 system, mm. um, has come on board as, as a way to edit um, edit genes in a very uh, sophisticated and targeted way. And the kind of way it works and the way it's best described is a kind of like a, a find and destroy kind of system where um, there's two parts of this CRISPR uh, uh, system. It's called CRISPR because it was discovered in bacteria in the 1980s and they, you know, they were kind of just, oh, well, this is a clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic region. Of course. Very catchy name. But CRISPR's a bit catchier. Um, anyway, it reminds so me of bacon somehow. <laughs> so there's CRISPR and there's these CRISPR-associated <laughs> proteins, which are called Cas proteins. Anyway, so two bits. One's the fine bit and that's the CRISPR. CRISPR's kind of like a, the DNA. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the, the sort of like the search term. It's just like search for this bit, this bit of DNA and it gets turned into a piece of RNA that gets fed into this Cas enzyme. And the Cas enzyme is um, a cutting, a, a, a protein that cuts DNA. So it's basically like the CRISPR bit is like the find bit and the Cas bit is the destroy bit. It's just like, and the thing is you can program this system by feeding in different CRISPR sequences. Mm. And you can choose anywhere in the genome you want. You just feed a little bit of sequence in and, and you say to the Cas enzyme, when you find this bit, cut it here. And then you can just go snip, snip, snip. And so you can do this extremely precise, efficient way of editing DNA. And it's been shown that it actually does work um, in plants, it works in bacteria, and just last year a Chinese research team showed mm. that it works in human embryos. Scary. Scary and exciting at mm. all at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So there was a three-day moratorium to discuss what the social and ethical issues of this were, and it was decided that CRISPR couldn't um, and shouldn't you know, be used to edit heritable genomes. Right. So, so in that um, we shouldn't be using CRISPR on, um, in, in ways that could um, lead to uh, an inheritance system. So you can do it, um, you can use it to study embryos, but you can't then use those embryos to, to create life. So so it's kind of been kept out of the, the main um, sort of uh, inheritable genome um, in terms of, you know, being able to work on reproductive cells for, for a person. Mm-hmm. So no, no, mm-hmm. no, um, no designer babies at this point. But where CRISPR can be used um, is actually in uh, established adult cells to correct things like blood disorders or to use in human immune cells. Um, and that the first CRISPR clinical trials have been approved just last month and they'll go start going forwards um, towards the end of 2016 and the start of 2017. But this is to do very precise gene editing, for example, to fix a rare retinal disorder in the eye, for example, mm. where it's very targeted, very precise, um, but we're only just at the start of experimenting in a very you know, new way with, with changing your genes. So the answer is, can you change your genes? Maybe. Maybe. But I wouldn't rush in. Yeah. It's still very experimental at this Good point. Good stuff. Thank you, Dr. Crystal. We are out of time. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. I can see Matt Stedman over there in studio too, banging on the glass. Jeff, thank you very much. Crystal, thank you very Cheers. much. Ailey, thank you very thank much. You. Uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed. She looked at me then like I'd forgotten her name, but of course I haven't. I'm Dr. Shane. <laughs> we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much for listening in. You're on 3 Triple R. This is Einstein and Gago. Remember, science is everywhere. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.